0: Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenters in today's episode are Cameron Brooks and Dan Reed. Together, we'll be talking about helpful strategies for understanding the big picture of the biblical story what the Apostle Paul can teach us about being relevant to our culture and, when necessary, pushing back against it. And we'll also talk about how Paul's teaching on authority in the church shines a light on what we'll call the larger ecosystem of discipleship. Last week, a friend of mine mentioned a sermon series that is being preached his church, which kind of blew my mind a little bit. Apparently, they're taking one entire book of the Bible for each sermon. And the idea is to preach through the entire Bible, you know, one sermon at a time, but one book at a time. So I guess 66 sermons in the series, just racing through. I mean, can you imagine Cameron trying to cover an entire book like Ezekiel or Daniel in a single sermon. Uh, no, I
1: don't think I could do it. Do you think you could do it?
0: I don't know. I mean, I, I think even, you know, Dan in his current series is taking three weeks to get through the book of Titus, mm-hmm. which is only three chapters. And I think if we were to ask him, he would say he feels like he's leaving a lot out. So I, I maybe Jude would be one, yeah. but but I certainly couldn't imagine one sermon per book but I guess there is a kind of
1: logic to it. Well, what do you think it is? I'm I'm curious what's the point of doing that when you could go deeper? There's sure. so much in each book. Why not slow down? What's the point of the the broad overview? Like if you think about what you miss by racing through that way,
0: it helps illustrate what it is that you might be gaining. Because yes, you're missing the details. But what you're gaining is let's say like the broad sweep of the Bible. Uh, a better sense of, you know, how it all fits together. So if you can imagine, it easily you could preach through the book of Genesis and it could take you, you know, a year or two to do justice to it. But imagine getting Genesis, then Exodus, then Leviticus, then Numbers, and Deuteronomy, then Joshua, and, and going like that in a much shorter period of time, you would be getting the sense of the, the big narrative, and and that's what my friend said. He said that it has really helped people who are accustomed to maybe having a more, let's say, zoomed in uh, study of scripture, get a
1: better grasp of the big picture. Hmm. I really like that idea. I would love to listen in on some of those sermons just to kind of see how he goes about it. I'm curious to put you on the spot, how how you think you'd go about preparing a sermon like that, say, for example, for one of the gospels, you knew you had to get the whole book and the whole life of Jesus. Um, What, you know, what would you want to, what would you want to say, I
0: guess? Well, I mean, thinking, you know, strategically as a pastor, the gospels were probably one of the easier parts because you get, you know, four passes at the content with the life of Jesus. So four whole sermons, When you're going through that whole sweep, I think, you know, off the top of my head, the thing I would want to trace throughout scripture would be, let's say like Christological threads, Mm -hmm. you know, so how each book in the Bible relates to uh, redemptive history, for example. And so I think if I were trying to take on a whole book in a sermon, that would be my approach to, to do the redemptive historical big picture in that way. But, Mm -hmm. but I think there's different ways you could do it. You know, I I guess the, the hard part about it, of course, is that for a lot of people you would be concerned about what you're missing. Mm -hmm. If you're going so quickly, sort of like uh, when you're reading your Bible and the reading plan says, Oh, we're going to read five chapters today. And you might be reading some really densely packed stuff, and you might be reading verses that you could really profit from by slowing down and meditating on them. And yet, if you do read those chapters, uh, you get the the bigger picture. And so that's the trade-off, right? So how do you uh, learn the big stuff? Well, you, you do that maybe by fast-forwarding a little over the, the fine details, mm-hmm. which you can pick up in other ways. You know, you can go back and fill in those gaps.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really important to, to have both. So both that attention to detail in every verse and paying attention to the grammar and the logic of whatever you're reading. But being able to put that in a larger context is equally as important, I think, to get where you are, as you said, in, in redemptive history. And I think that was something I didn't really learn until seminary, honestly. And if I could plug the, uh, the Bible project, which I know we've talked about here before, they, they really helped me with that too, because they have these great summaries of every book of the Bible. And of course they do videos too. So if, if people are looking for resources, if they don't have a sermon series to go listen to, I would, I would definitely encourage people to go watch those videos just to get a sense of the book as a whole in five minutes or so.
0: Right. So we did talk about the Bible Project. uh, I think when we started in on Zechariah at the beginning of the commentary earlier this year, one of the recommendations was to go back and watch those Bible Project videos. And actually, I was just at the church picnic and speaking with some people who took that seriously and have kind of gotten hooked Mm -hmm. on Bible Project videos, and and for exactly that reason, uh, the, just the ability to cover so much in those videos. In fact, that's a great example of how, although it may seem like trying to take on a whole book in a sermon, you're going to leave a lot out. If if you see the way that the Bible Project does those overview videos, I mean that's not even a sermon length. They're not half hour videos; mm-hmm. like five to eight minute videos, and yet. I never watched them feeling like, man, that that left all the good stuff out. Yeah. I mean, they often are, have a genius for capturing the essence. And so, practically speaking, you probably don't need a 66-sermon series to get this kind of big-picture knowledge. One really practical way to do it would be to work through those Bible Project summary videos, or I have sitting on the the table over there, the illustrated summaries of the biblical books, the big large format book that they put out that has these big one page charts summarizing each of the books. That's another great practical way to orient yourself and get that, uh, that, that footing, you know, mm-hmm. the big picture. I think maybe there are also some conceptual things that could be helpful. Kind of like, um, you know, theology is a big subject. There's all sorts of different avenues to pursue. But a great starting point is to look at the Confession of Faith or the Catechisms. Because although they do not address everything and they do not address everything that they address in full detail, they do give you, like, the essence. And I think in a similar way there are some approaches to understanding redemptive history and the structure of the Bible that can be really helpful as well. Uh, you're familiar of course, with the uh, creation fall redemption themes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found
1: that a really helpful way to think about the Bible story. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And, um, and restoration at the end, right? Yep. Yeah. So I've heard, I've heard it said in different ways, the way that I actually, taught it to my students, was based off of the Bible project, again, the way that they they kind of do it in one video. It's creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, and then I think they say church, and then redemption after that. So they're kind of breaking it up in slightly different categories, and honestly, I think they're getting some of that from N.T. Wright's work, but one way or another, yeah, I think it's helpful to have those conceptual categories in my mind, just to think while I'm reading every morning. Okay, where where am I? What has happened? What direction are we going right now?
0: Right. And so I think there's there's like a, a narrative flow, but then there's also a, let's say like a thematic value to that. So mm-hmm. obviously creation and fall gets you through the first three chapters of Genesis. And then in Genesis 3.15, we start on the story of redemption. And so it may seem as if you know redemption is is a really huge category compared yeah. to all the others, and I think that is probably why they break it down into these these sort of epics. Mm-hmm. But it's not just the narrative that we're organizing when we talk about creation, fall redemption, and restoration. It's also uh, threads that we see recurring in history and, and just in reality. So there are themes and doctrines that are grounded in the doctrine of creation or the reality of creation that you constantly go back to, you know, when you have any question about, uh, nature, knowledge, human beings, human nature, all of Mm -hmm. those things inevitably take us back to the fact of creation and then also to the reality of the fall and its effects. And so these aren't just narrative events, but they're also, um, like explanations mm-hmm. and entry points into the the bigger story, and so I think when you recognize that the Bible has essentially a narrative arc to it, that it is all the story of Jesus, that he's like the protagonist, that uh, certain realizations come. You know, just just from your familiarity with stories in general, uh, we know that. You know, the story is driven by the big question at its heart, in this case, the question of redemption or salvation. Mm -hmm. You know, what will happen uh, to the human beings who are afflicted by sin if Jesus is the hero of that story? Well, the hero is inevitably the character in the story who does the work that is necessary to resolve the conflict. And so it helps us to understand that Jesus is not only, you know, a rabbi, not only a, a great moral teacher, but actually has to do something about the problem of sin in order to get us to that point of restoration so that that can become possible. Yeah. And I think it helps when you're down in sort of the you know, the nitty-gritty of Bible narrative, and this king and that prophet and that sort of thing, to be able to step back and and understand this is all part of a really complicated but unified story of redemption.
1: Yeah, I agree. It it helps while reading the Bible. I also think it helps just our self-understanding as Christians. So if if you step away from the Bible for a second and just think about, your own existence as a Christian in real history. We are a part of an epic you know, that's taking place still. And scripture points forward to the end of time and it says something about where the world and all of this is going, but that also helps inform where we're at right now. So I know that I'm a part of this growing body of believers called the church that Jesus started and gave his spirit to and all that. So I remember thinking in college, this, this really helps thinking about the Bible as a story and having these categories. It helps my reading, but it also just gives me a lot of, of new kind of life and self understanding as a Christian. Yeah. I,
0: I feel exactly the same way. I think probably the best advice I would give to someone who's trying to wrap their head around the Bible, maybe for the first time and, and, and understand it as a unity would be you don't have to grasp it all at once that oftentimes what what frustrates us or trips us up is we're aware of our lack of knowledge mm-hmm. it often seems like other people have more understanding than we do and how can we possibly catch up and so it, it can feel like every time you go to the bible you've got to sort of get it all And not miss anything. And probably the best thing that you could do is release yourself from that sense of obligation. And when you read the Bible, whether you're reading a small portion or a large portion, just remind yourself, you're going to come back again. You don't have to grasp everything immediately. You've got time and the Holy Spirit working in you. And it's okay to focus on one aspect And not all of them all at once, you know, maybe think of it like painting, you know, when you're painting a a room, you're going to do multiple layers of paint. One layer is not going to cover everything. No matter how thick you you make it, you're going to have to come back and do another layer. And so at least for me, you know, because I'm lazy when I know there's going to be a second layer or a third layer, I don't get so worked up about what I miss on the first pass because I'm I'm building in that return into my thought process. And I think reading the Bible should be the same way. Studying theology should be the same way. All of this is a multi-layer process where you will go back over things again and again. And so don't worry about not getting it all. Just begin and really enjoy and and derive, as you were saying, life from the thing that you are focused on. Let's shift gears and check in with Dan Reed. Dan's new sermon series on Titus is giving us a window on the life of discipleship, starting with the organization of the church. Over the course of the next few weeks on the commentary, We'll be having a side conversation about Titus and what his situation can teach us about church life today. So Dan, I have a lot of questions about Titus chapter 1. Now that you have preached the sermon and your series is off the ground and running, I feel like this is a great opportunity for us to come back and maybe look at some of the details that maybe, like, don't fit in the sermon or you you can't give as much time to the sermon as you might like to. But here on the podcast, we can dig into those things a little bit more. Sure. Okay. So here's where I want to begin that quote of Paul's where he quotes somebody saying that all Cretans are liars. And then he says, and this is very true. I, I think that's such a funny thing to find in one of Paul's letters.
2: Yeah, I mean, especially in today's world where we don't we don't like to generalize, we don't like to stereotype, uh, just to call out a whole group of people and say they're always liars, always lazy gluttons, and evil beasts. You would think Paul would say, "Well, come on, let, not all of them, but yeah." So right. that's kind let's of be charitable. Yeah, let's be charitable. Right. But uh that's not the path he goes down. It is not. <laughs> so
0: so what do you make of that? I mean you alluded to that in the the sermon and talked a little bit about the maybe the challenges that a culture like that represents.
2: Yeah, it, it's, Paul is an amazing mind. Uh you you can see that in his sermons in acts, you can see that in his letters. He's an amazing mind, and we were just talking about how this is part of a larger passage. This is a, a Greek uh, philosopher. Uh, is it Is that how you say it? Or Epimenides. 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 Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but he quoted him in Acts seventeen, um, and, and so it, when he was in Athens speaking to the people who had all the idols and worshiping the unknown god, uh, and so Paul has this his his finger on the culture, and and it understands the people, the men, the thinkers of that culture, and then is able to use them in positive in positive and negative ways. He's able to mine out some of the good parts of it, and he's able to kind of say, this is where you have it wrong, and let's talk about this with a Christian worldview.
0: Yeah, let's, let's listen to that passage. This is uh, fascinating to me. So this is Epimenides of Crete, And according to Wikipedia, he was a 6th century BC philosopher, Mm. uh, obviously, who lived on Crete. And so uh, he is, as Paul says, a prophet of their own. So he's himself a Cretan, and he's writing a poem here, and it has to do with Zeus. Mm. And this is the stanza that's quoted uh, in our passage, Titus 1, they fashioned a tomb for thee, O holy and high one. The Cretans, always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies, but thou art not dead. Thou livest and abidest forever, for in thee we live and move and have our being. So, if you know your Pauline epistles, in that little stanza, it's not just Titus one that jumps out at you, but also, as you said, Acts seventeen uh, as well, and. It's quite a shift because those words at the end here, for in thee we live and move and have our being, Paul quotes at Mars Hill, and it's it's this beautiful statement that he repurposes the the words that are written in reference to Zeus, but Paul actually takes them and 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 directs them towards the true God. But it's right there in this same passage that we get this: "Cretans are liars and evil beasts and and idle, lazy gluttons and." That sort of thing. So it's fascinating. He's clearly familiar with this, and uh, yeah, is is making use of this cultural knowledge in order mm-hmm. to communicate, right? To be uh, culturally aware. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that's very. It's it's interesting, and and even you talk about. Zeus, uh, you probably know better than I, but was it that Zeus was, uh, was it Crete his throne or was that where he was born or? Uh, oh, you know, that's a great question. I'm not sure
0: uh, what the connection is other than um, I think, again, according to Wikipedia, there was some kind of debate over the immortality of Zeus and that's mm. what led to this statement being written. I I think we can definitely relate to the idea of bringing the gospel to a challenging cultural setting. Mm. Right. I mean, I'm sure you've heard from missionaries in different parts of the world. who will talk about, yeah, this is a hard place to bring the gospel. And I'm sure Crete must've been really challenging. Otherwise Paul wouldn't have had to, to give the instruction Mm -hmm. that he does. But, uh, what kind of lessons do you think we might learn from that, though? I mean, we're obviously not um, in a culture ourselves where everyone is known for how consistent their lying is. <laughs> uh, Sioux Falls, that's not our reputation. But, mm-hmm. but are there any lessons you think that we could learn in terms of our cultural
2: engagement or stance? Uh, one of the things that we can do is when we look at the way that Paul uses the culture, uh, like we were talking about earlier, he has a finger on it. He knows what's going on. He understands some of the reputations. He understands what's going on in the broader sense. And he, he's not just following along, but he understands it. And he, there's charity there that he understands it for what it is. He sees beyond what it is on the surface uh, and says that this is something that we can learn from uh, and we can use. Uh, and it can help us understand the human condition and bring people to the gospel and bring people to a knowledge of God. Um, another thing that we were talking about earlier is is understanding that there we have cultural blind spots, too. That there are, you know, you hear people talk about Americans in general, and we're very proud. Uh, we're very independent. Uh, we care a lot about, you know, fashion and, and what we look like. And we can be sort of vain And I think that some of those things, we tend to look at other people and we say, well, we're not as vain as them or we're not as proud as they are, but there are cultural lessons and blind spots that we have that we have to be understanding and we have to look at ourselves honestly and say, yeah, I probably am that way a little bit. How does the gospel confront that? How does the gospel transform me in that? I guess we could take what Paul does here and maybe look at Titus
0: 1 and then look at Acts 17 and see uh like a double-edged sword, like like mm. a, a two-pronged strategy, where at Mars Hill, it seems to me that he is engaging positively and like taking advantage of the cultural disposition, right? You're you're very religious, mm-hmm. you are already worshiping this unknown God, and I'm just here to proclaim to you his identity. Right. Mm. So you are on the right path. You're you're questing for something, and I'm here to help you see this is what it is that you, that you're looking for. I think that's the positive side of this sort of cultural awareness. And I guess in Titus one, we're getting what what we'd have to call the negative side, like what you have to be on guard against. So it's not enough just to be aware of what people's interests are and kind of what they what they value in their culture, and then to give them that or, or communicate with them on that plain sometimes those cultural assumptions have to be challenged and and pushed back against Mm. and so it's it's like you might think of it as like on on the one hand relevance but on the other hand there's like a a challenge even a rebuke Mm. that the gospel brings to those kinds of behaviors so I think a lot about in the early days of Grace, we had a conversation kind of asking ourselves the question, like if we were going to describe the culture of our city and what it's, let's say idols are, I mean, they're good idols, they're, they're good things. You know, here, this is a place where people really value uh, family, mm. Uh, really put children on a pedestal. There's a a way in which a church could respond to that by essentially organizing its whole life around this idea of family and that mm-hmm. sort of warm, fuzzy notion. And yet, you know, we do see some of that, uh, like, cultural bias taking us in, in bad directions. You know, the the fact that so much of our lives are organized around like our kids activities or something like that uh, doesn't leave us time Mm. to do maybe what would be best for our families. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are ways of being really busy. There are ways of, you know, I think like letting the children teach us instead of the other way around that are actually detrimental. And so recognizing that you know as a church we don't want to just say well people really love family so let's play up the family theme we also want to recognize where that love can lead us astray and push back against it right help people recognize how to how to navigate the downsides and mm-hmm. and have those priorities set correctly so i wonder if it it might be something like that where Paul's basically giving Titus the ammunition, mm, right, to go sure. into this this place and to challenge things that the culture is so accepting of that they don't even really notice that that's what they're doing.
2: Yeah, that's that's a great point. And Like you said, this is where Paul is talking about those false teachers that have come into the church and are bringing the church sideways and they're bringing it the wrong direction and and Paul is very adamant and very specific to, yeah, this is who these people are, and you need to silence them, and you need to rebuke them sharply, uh, those two imperatives that we see in this section.
0: Yeah, so, so okay, that brings a second question up, though, that I, I want to go back to, because you said something in your sermon that I, I found really, really good, and it had to do with the authority of the elders, mm. and let's say, like, the limits of what they can actually do. And you you use Mm. this analogy of a gardener Mm. and compared the elders of the church to gardeners, you know, working in the field. But you pointed out uh, gardeners don't make the plants grow. Mm. So what were you getting at there? Just to give everybody a refresher, what was the point of that?
2: yeah um, yeah with the analogy, uh, as a gardener, you go in and you want a good garden, you want great produce, so you do all the work, you get the bed ready, you plant them in rows, you water them and fertilize them, you take care of the weeds, uh, you provide the structures for the tomatoes to grow up, um, and, but at the end of the day, you're not growing the plants, the plants are growing from a seed, and all of the proper preparation has been done for them to thrive and so they they flourish thanks to the gardener but not because the gardener himself or herself is making the plant grow and so the analogy with the church then is the elders are the gardeners they're the ones that are overseeing they're the ones that are providing the order they're providing the instruction and making sure that it's a safe environment and that the teaching of the church is what it ought to be But the people themselves are the ones that are growing as the Lord through the Spirit comes and works within our hearts and encourages us to grow. And there is growth, uh, spiritual growth that takes place because of the structure, but ultimately because the Spirit is working in the hearts and minds of the people. Yeah, I like that analogy, I think, because a
0: lot of what we do as a church is like you say, structural. Like we mm. provide opportunities, we provide um like like a, a lane to travel down, mm-hmm. but we can't make you travel down that lane. Yeah. Uh you know, we can have a Bible study, we can't make you go. There are limitations to what we're able to do. And also there are like let's say other factors involved in growth. Mm. So on the one hand you know i guess what i'm emphasizing is your responsibility mm. or participation right the here's the structure like this is the house but c- you need to come live in it yeah you know you need to spend some time here and you need to take advantage of these things but there's this other side of it which is the spiritual component mm-hmm. um the crops we can plant them and we can you know guard them against, you see the rabbits and, Mm -hmm. and, uh, other predatory animals, but we still need the rain to come Mm -hmm. and that's in God's hands. You know, that's, um, this Sunday I'll be preaching on Zechariah 10 and, and it opens up with this, you know, beautiful appeal, you know, ask the Lord for rain, Mm. you know, ask the Lord to send the rain. Uh, speaking to people who've experienced a lot of bad harvests, you know, mm-hmm. are pretty desperate for that help that they need for their work to succeed, but that they cannot provide for themselves. And so I think there's, in the life of the church, a need to always remember that uh, we do everything we can from the standpoint of cultivation, mm. but we rely on, God to bring that rain and and make that growth happen, and so when you think about the church, always remember right that the mm. the church is is this complex organism where you have like the elders as under shepherds providing leadership and structure, but then the people as a congregation as worshipers entering into that structure and inhabiting it and and bringing it. it uh, all of the the life that's meant to be there, filling it with uh, praise and the glory of God. And then also the spiritual component where we, we await the spirit like rain to pour down on us and to bring growth to us. And all of that is, is like, I guess we could call it like the ecosystem of discipleship. Oh
2: man. Yes. That's very, that's, that's great. It's amazing when you study God's word, how many connections you find and And so I talk about the gardener and the elders providing the structure and oversight. And then you talk about the rain next week. And then in two weeks, I'll be back and we'll be talking about the members of the church and sort of the responsibility and and looking at what does it look like to live a life according to the gospel. Uh, It'll just kind of be going back and forth and moving in all the same direction. Definitely.
0: Yeah. So thanks for debriefing on Titus 1 with us. And in our next episode, we'll actually look at Titus 2 a little bit and help you prepare for how to dig deeper on the second chapter in Dan's series. That's all the time we have for now. Thank you, Cameron, and thank you, Dan. And thanks to you, our listeners. We appreciate you spending this time with us. We hope you'll join us next time. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed the commentary, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit GraceForSueFalls.org.